You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com. Hi, I'm Ralph Powell, co founder and CEO of Real Vision. Thank you so much for listening to the Real Vision podcast. At Real Vision, we pride ourselves on providing the best in-depth expert analysis available to help you understand the complex world of finance, business, and the global economy. If you like what you hear, I hope you'll accept my invitation to try Real Vision Plus for 30 days for just $1. Visit realvisionpodcast.com today and join us as we navigate the financial world together. Cheers. Hello, podcast listeners. Alex Rosenberg from Real Vision with another audio version of an interview that we released to subscribers on realvision.com. And today we're listening to Whitney Tilson. Now, Whitney Tilson, you might know him as a hedge fund manager with Case Capital Management. He founded that fund. He grew it from you know what he describes as his bedroom, grew it to a major player, and then it uh, it all it all went away. And he tells the whole story of the incredible rise and fall of his hedge fund in this conversation with Real Vision's Ed Harrison. Whitney also talks about some current market situations that he finds interesting. He talks about Fannie and Freddie at length, and he talks about Amazon. He sees Amazon as a value stock, and he sees WeWork as uh, maybe not so much. So they talk about his career, they talk about some specific situations, and they talk a bit about the research that Whitney is doing now with Empire Financial Research. So this interview was recorded on September 9th, released to subscribers on September 13th, and you get to hear the whole version right here on your podcast feed. So please enjoy this conversation between Ed Harrison and Whitney Tilson. Whitney Tilson, it's a pleasure to talk to you. We're going to talk a lot about value investing, some of the ideas that you have, what you're doing currently with Empire Financial uh, Research. But the first question that pops to me when I uh, look at your resume is that your parents were teachers. How is it that you got so involved in investing? Yeah, well, it didn't come naturally, that's for sure. My parents, their entire lives, never owned a stock. Uh, we never, you know, so it wasn't like investing or business was ever talked about around the dinner table. Uh, I grew up in developing countries, Tanzania, Nicaragua, most of my childhood. My interest in business developed uh, when I was an undergraduate at Harvard and, uh, you know, got involved with Harvard student agencies. And, and I remember probably my sophomore year as an undergrad, um, somehow through some friend, uh, went and sat in on a Harvard Business School class. And I just loved the case study method. And I still remember the case and what the insights were. And I knew right then that I wanted to go to Harvard Business School. And that was my mission uh, from that point forward. So I did a bunch of entrepreneurial stuff. Um, coming out of college uh, was employee number two, helping Wendy Kopp start Teach for America. Then did a fairly traditional two-year associate program um, at Boston Consulting Group. And, uh, you know, was lucky enough, knock on wood, uh, to get into Harvard Business School, the only school I applied to. If I hadn't gotten in, I just would have waited and applied to some other schools later. But uh, got in, 
um, and off I went. But up until that point, all the way through Harvard Business School, had no interest in investing. Uh -huh. um, I used to, I remember we used to get the, I, I was very interested in business. So right. when the Wall Street Journal came, uh, I'd read it, but except I'd take the C section, the money and investing section, I threw it in the trash, never even read it. Uh, so, you know, my only exposure really to investing was through my college buddy, Bill Ackman, who was very interested in investing at a young age. And I still remember bumping into him on campus back on Black October 1987. And he was white as a ghost. And, and I said, Bill, what's the matter? And he said, did you see what happened in the stock market? And I said, no. And he's like, well, it just you know, had its worst day since the Great Depression or something. And you know, my family just lost millions of dollars. And I was thinking to myself, gee, I wish I had millions of dollars to lose. <laughs> um, but it, so Warren Buffett came to speak at Harvard Business School when I was there. And I didn't even go hear him, right. that incredible opportunity, because I didn't even know who he was. So it wasn't until the mid '90s, uh, a few. Just I graduated in 1994, so call it '96, I'd say. I got interested in investing for a very simple reason. I had $10,000 in my bank account. Uh, it was the first time in my life I ever had any savings. I had college debt, then I had business school debt. Uh, I had gotten married back in 93. My wife was working as a lawyer. Um, we were living in her grandparents' apartment, so we had a low cost of living. Both of us had incomes. Uh, I was working in the nonprofit sector at the time, so I didn't have much of an income. But between the two of us, you know, we finally had some savings, paid off our debt, had a little, had $10,000. And so I called up Bill. I said, Bill, you know, uh, what should I do with it? I want to invest this money. And keep in mind, the you know, 1996 or so, you're now 14 years into this big bull market. Everybody's talking about stocks. The internet's starting to, you know, the early germs of the internet are sprouting. Um, so uh, Bill said, all you got to do, I still remember his exact words. Uh -huh. He said, all you have to do is read everything Warren Buffett's ever written. Go back and read all his annual shareholders letters and you can stop there. You don't need to read anything else. That's when I uh, uh, discovered Buffett, read his shareholder letters, and that led me to a couple years later start going to the Berkshire meetings. I read uh, Roger Lowenstein's book, Buffett, The Making of American Capitalists, sort of the first major biography of him. Then that led me to The Intelligent Investor, to Peter Lynch's books, um, you know, Beating the Street and One Up on, on the Street, um, Seth Klarman's original book, et cetera, et cetera. It led me into the literature and, and I just got more and more into it and started buying a few stocks here and there. And at the time, you know, I'm embarrassed that I was sort of speculating in penny stocks, right. you know, hot tips somebody had given me. But fortunately, um, you know, I, I at least fairly quickly started gravitating toward higher quality businesses and Buffett's influence and Bill Ackman's influence um, started to, you know, steer me into higher quality businesses. and. I did that for a couple of years, started managing, you know, at this point, maybe my wife and I had saved, I don't know, $100,000. So I started, I put that money in an E-Trade account and started buying the Gap, Dell, Microsoft, right. um, AOL was my big score, uh, went up six times in a year in the late 90s. Um, and I quickly came to believe that I was God's gift to investing because every stock I picked went up. Um, I now look back and realize I really wasn't doing much fundamental research, didn't have any particular insights. I was just sort of buying what was hot, and it was a, a, a stock market not too dissimilar to what we've seen over the past 10 years, where you know you just sort of bought some popular blue chip stocks, and they just went up every year, and you look like a genius, right? right? 
So um, it was at that point, Bill was probably four or five years into his first hedge fund uh, called Gotham Partners. Mm -hmm. um, he had grown it from $3 million at inception to $500 million under management. He was hot. And I figured, well, I'm as smart as Bill. Uh, and if my friend can do it, I'm, I, I, Bill and I are, are very close friends, but we're, we're both super competitive right. people. So, you know, sort of in late 1998, um, my nonprofit job after five years working with Michael Porter at Harvard Business School is uh, something I had started coming out of HBS, um, was winding down. I said, you know, why don't I do what Bill did uh, a few years earlier and just hang out my shingle as the world's smallest hedge fund. And so six weeks later, it was mid-November 1998, I made that rash decision. I've been telling every young person ever since, don't try and do what I do, oh, yeah, which yeah. is rush out and start a fund out of your bedroom with a million dollars under management with absolutely no experience, uh, either on the business side of running and building an investment management business or really on the investing side. Uh, I was sort of a late 90s bull market genius, um, but that's how it came to be. And uh, I opened my doors as the world's smallest hedge fund uh, on January 1st of 1999 uh, with a million dollars from my parents, my in-laws, Bill threw in a little bit of money, his dad threw in a little bit of money, plus my own money. That got me to about a million dollars when I started. But you say that uh, you didn't have a lot of acumen, but you uh, hit a lot of home runs. I mean, subsequently, over the next yeah. two decades, you did very well. Yes. Well, I, I split it sort of into two periods. Mm -hmm. um, the first dozen years or so, I really did knock the cover off the ball. Um, it was a great time for investing. And um, to some extent, I was smart and lucky. Mm -hmm. um, and, but, but a lot of hustle led to the luck. What, what's the old saying? You know, the harder I work, the luckier I get. Um, so as an example, um, only a year after I started, we're now in early, um, the spring of 2000, mm -hmm. a year after I'd launched, I was up to about $4 million. And I heard that investing legend Joel Greenblatt, who I'd read his book, You Can Be a Stock Market Genius, again, one of those classic early value investing books, that he was teaching a class up at Columbia Business School. So I found out when the first class was and in what classroom, and I just showed up. And I sort of looked like a student. I was only five years out of business school myself. So I sat in the back of the classroom, and he didn't notice me or anything. And, and I learned for the couple hours he was teaching that day. And then I went up to him after class, and I introduced myself and confessed that I wasn't a student, but that I was a big fan of his. I'd read his book. I'm launching my own little hedge fund. Uh, would he mind if I sat in on the rest of the semester? And he got a very uncomfortable look on really? his face because he's, it's, you know, it's against Columbia Business School policy to let just random right. people come sit in on their classes. Um, and he said, I'm not supposed to do this, but if you promise to keep quiet, like you can't participate in any of the discussions like a regular student. But if you just want to sit there and keep quiet, I'll look the other way. And so I did. And that was an incredible investing education because this was the, the absolute very peak of the internet bubble. Mm -hmm. It was March 10th of 2000. I was taking this class that week and he was preaching the gospel of special situations. And, and it, it, it's hard for young people today who didn't live through it to understand anything that wasn't nifty 50 internet related then. 
uh, was incredibly cheap. Good industrial kind of businesses trading at three or four times earnings. Berkshire Hathaway had uh, gotten uh, had fallen from seventy thousand a share down to just over forty thousand dollars a share, which was sort of cash and investment. So you got uh, a much younger Buffett and Munger. You know, 75 operating businesses for free. You were just you know, right. was trading at cash and investments. So that was an opportunity that I put 30% of my little $4 million fund into Berkshire Hathaway. Um, it happened, I got lucky on the timing. I'd been buying it. I, I'd owned it since I started my fund a year earlier. I bought a little more on the way down. So I, I wasn't perfect on the timing. But the day I really backed up the truck on it was happened to be, just coincidentally, the final day of the NASDAQ blow off to the upside, and not coincidentally, because money was coming out of value stocks to go into astroturf.com or whatever, <laughs> and was the day Berkshire bottomed. Um, within two months, Berkshire was up 50%, and that was a 30% wow, yeah. position for me. So, you know, that's a combination of sort of being lucky, but also being good and having some courage and being willing to take a big bet early in my career because. You know, one of the things I tell young people who are trying to bootstrap a fund like I was is you have to look for a couple opportunities to take some risk to to deliver some outsized returns because otherwise you're you're going to be stuck in the small fund trap. Right. Um, you know, the vast majority of funds that start with a million dollars out of their bedroom like I did, the vast majority never even get to 10 million and that's just not a viable business. So, I got lucky in that the market offered me an opportunity to put 30% of my fund into something that was both super safe and super cheap. The dilemma today is, is you know, you can take a big bet and put 30% of your fund into Bitcoin or something, but chances are you're gonna get clobbered. So there was some there was some luck there early in my career. So I made the pivot away from being sort of a nifty fifty big cap popular momentum stock investor into small cap value stuff, very obscure little businesses, universal stainless steel, uh, uh, you know, little company called Aon, I can't even remember, Imperial Parking, these obscure little companies that were super cheap and beaten down. And I could see big picture that large cap growth was trading at a valuation premium relative to small cap value, just the sectors. Right. We're trading at, I don't know, a 20 or 30 year gap in terms of valuation. And so I had ridden the big cap, large cap growth stocks for a few years, mostly out of ignorance, mm -hmm. um, not because I sort of said, hey, you know, I, I know these are really overvalued, but momentum is momentum, and I'm just going to ride it. I, I, you know, even that I would have had some respect for. I didn't even have, you know, I, I didn't even have the the good sense to do that. Um, but I, it was a very deliberate decision over the course of roughly 2000 to 2001. Is is um, I got I got Warren Buffett value investing religion, and I thank Bill Ackman and Joel Greenblatt and some other real value investors, who who helped teach me. Um, and it was in the nick of time, and so I got into the cheapest, most beaten down sector um, at the right time. So as the internet bubble burst and the market was crapping out uh, in 2000, 2001 into 2002. I was in a sector that did pretty well. So I started putting up pretty good numbers. and was beating the market every year. Um, and I picked up a writing gig at The Motley Fool. Mm, and yes. that uh, website had a lot of traffic, 
um, and was riding the AOL iOmega internet bubble. And then when that burst, um, there was basically nobody over there that had much credibility because they had been giving advice that incinerated all of their readers. And then there was me, and I'd been pounding the table for over the course of dozens of articles. I was writing at least one article a week, sometimes two or three a week, and with a pretty consistent message. Listen to Warren Buffett, buy Berkshire Hathaway, the internet is a bubble, get out of these overvalued tech stocks. You know, one of my favorite articles back then was called Cisco, Apple, and Probabilities. It's, it's still on the internet today. If you just Google Whitney Tilson, Cisco, Apple, and Probabilities. And basically, Cisco was the market darling at that time, for a while anyway, had the biggest market cap in the world. To this day, 20 years later, still a great company. The stock has not reached the peak that it hit 20 years ago. And meanwhile, Apple, and this is after Steve Jobs had come back in, sitting on a big pile of cash, basically not losing money, but wasn't making any money yet. Um, but you had Steve Jobs and the Apple brand, a uh, lot of loyal customers, and a big pile of cash. So you had a clean balance sheet. Apple was trading, if I recall, it had something like a $3 billion enterprise value. $3 billion for a company today that's about a trillion, right? right? And I said, I'm not arguing that Apple is as good a company as Cisco. What I'm arguing is, is that Apple, the stock at three times earnings is a better buy than Cisco stock right. at 150 times earnings. So that was the kind of message out there. So um, as the um, internet bubble burst, the Motley Fool promoted me to one of their highest profile uh, writing positions called Fool on the Hill. So I was the Fool on the Hill every week. Um, and so that really got my name out there um, uh, and helped me build my business combined with the good numbers I was putting up. So, you know, my fund grew and grew. And basically for the next 10 years or so, up through the housing crisis and all, I was consistently beating the margin. I think 10 of my first 12, uh, market I should say, uh, 10 of the first 12 years, I was uh, ahead of the S&P. Um, money was coming in. Um, I nailed the internet bubble. I later nailed the housing bubble. Ended up on 60 Minutes uh, uh, as, you know, they, it was, a, it was a piece on the housing crisis that ended up winning an Emmy, and I was sort of the featured guy who mm -hmm. predicted it. So, you know, there, there are few th there's few things that are better publicity than being on 60 Minutes when they're trying to make you look smart. You don't want to be on 60 Minutes' bad side. Um, so, you know, that got me up to about $200 million under management at uh, my peak. I brought in a partner a few years earlier, and the two of us were sort of off to the races and a billion dollars under management and having retirement money uh, for ourselves was sort of, you know, next in line. And then the wheels fell off the bus. And over the next couple uh, from uh, middle of 2010 through 2012, the next two years, we were down 25% mm. in a plus 50 market. Right. Um, and it was due to a bunch of different factors, but... Um, so uh, in hindsight, which yeah. factors would you look at as the most important factors? Yeah, well, any great train wreck um, generally has what uh, has... Uh, has what Charlie Munger calls Lollapalooza effects. In other words, it wasn't just one thing. It's right. a whole series of things. Mm -hmm. Our portfolio, um, in, in terms of the partnership I had, um, we, um, we didn't have clear lines of responsibility, and there was no tie-breaking mechanism. So one area is our portfolio became very bloated. He had all of his favorite stocks. I had all of my favorite stocks. So we were wildly diversified, uh, but, it, but then, 
almost counterintuitively, we were overly concentrated in some of our favorite positions. And a couple of them, some Iridium warrants, we got sucked into the Ron Johnson, JC Penney story. So we had a couple bad stocks, but it wasn't fundamentally bad stock picking. But uh, one lesson I certainly learned is, is that I did not fully appreciate early in my career, is the importance of portfolio management mm -hmm. as opposed to stock picking. Right. I always just thought, look, if you pick good stocks, you're gonna do great, full stop. Um, and for my first, you know, five or 10 years or so, that was generally true because all I did was own a dozen stocks and didn't have any short positions. And so, you know, um, that was it. What I realized though is, is sort of as we got smarter, we uh, started short selling. We started buying options and warrants. Um, our prime broker was very happy to have us go out on margin. Um, so we started levering up um, with our favorite positions. And we started to trade around our positions right. more. So um, the combination of all of those being mo more aggressive in all of these areas of portfolio management, um, initially all of those things I just mentioned worked. And so that sucked us into doing more of them. Um, but very slowly over time, we ended up having a very risky, volatile portfolio that was extended out on margin and had a lot of options and had a bunch of risky securities, uh, you know, like a JCPenney turnaround and Iridium warrants and so forth, that caused our portfolio to start swinging around like crazy and ultimately uh, led to some real train wrecks in some of our positions. And so we ended up 2011, really was our Waterloo. We were down 20% in a plus two market, if I recall. And we never really recovered from that. Right. In 2012, my partner and I decided we were better managing money as individuals than we were together. If you look at our eight year track record together, so, um, and you know, we had some disagreements over you know, how to fix things because we just put up a negative 20 year in a, in a plus market, right? So, um, and so we just decided to you know, separate the, separate the, uh, the fund. Um, and so I relaunched on January 1st of 2013 um, and I took everything to cash and slowly started to rebuild the fund. And so the last six years or so, uh, five years, I guess, when I was running the fund on my own, maybe it was because I was so scarred by what had happened uh, the previous couple years, my fund was uh, way too conservative. So um, keep in mind, we were now three or four years into this 10-year bull market. And I uh, had gotten accustomed to buying stocks really cheap when there right. was blood in the streets in right. 08 and 09. And so, you know, there was the European debt crisis um, and other, so many other things that I thought could lead to a real pullback in the market. So I was playing value investing, defensive uh, investing. So um, I had a bunch of cash. I rebuilt my short book, and I was sort of underexposed on the long side, waiting for those you know, cheap opportunities to come, and they never came. I completely misread this bull market, and I ended up trailing the market year after year. So it was no longer the, the big losses that had, caught, that had broken up my partnership. It was just fatigue. It was drip torture. It was 
You know, most of my investors were individual investors um, who had their money in the S&P 500 index, and here I was charging hedge fund fees and underperforming that index, right. and it was sort of hard to justify. And so money leaked out, and my assets eventually trickled down to about $50 million, um, which, you know, a lot of people would kill for a $50 million fund. That's actually not a bad business with the right cost structure. But I just felt like I'd lost my mojo. I was fatigued. I felt like I was letting my investors down. And so I eventually said, you know what? There's, uh, I, I got to hit the restart button here. And so I returned my investors' capital just about two years ago at the end of 2017, September 2017. Well, you know, as you tell that story, the, the first thing that pops out to me is your realization that uh, in terms of the Warren Buffett value investing mentality that you had it reversed in terms of where you were concentrating your efforts. Yeah. You could concentrate your efforts on cheap stocks or ones that have moats, but you were concentrating your efforts on the, the cheap stock area. Yeah. And you, and in retrospect, you think that that's, that's the wrong, tell me yeah. about that. Yeah, well look, uh, um, one of the things I did after I closed my fund is, is I sat, sat down and I looked back through my entire 20 year history, read all my monthly investor letters and looked at my portfolio where I'd made and lost money. And I realized that I had owned some of the greatest stocks of all time. I owned Apple back when it had a $3 billion market cap. Right. I owned Netflix in 2011 and 12 at a $3 billion market cap. That's been about a 50 bagger. Apple's been a 300 bagger. I owned Ross Stores at a buck 70. That's been a 70 bagger. The only one that I really identified a quality business and just hung with it uh, was Berkshire Hathaway, which I owned from day one to year 18 when I closed my fund. I owned it consistently. Um, but the rest, you know, I bought them. Uh, I owned McDonald's back when it got really cheap in 2002, early 2003. It got down to $12 a share. Um, what's it at? 200 today. Uh, I owned Home Depot, um, you name it. Um, Yet I had sort of owned them at the right time mm -hmm. when great companies had encountered uh, what turned out to be temporary difficulties. Their stocks got cheap. I bought them. That part I did quite well. The problem is, is the stocks then went up 50% and they didn't appear as cheap anymore. Right. And I sold them. And it was, um, I realized my, probably my single biggest mistake over 20 years is, is that I probably paid, you know, there's always, there are two main things you're looking at, which uh -huh. is price, valuation, and business quality. And I was smart enough to understand they were both important. But when I look back and I look back at my decision making and where I was screening for stocks, um, I was probably 75% focus on statistically cheap stocks, right. low price to earnings, price to book, cash flow, whatever, traditional valuation multiples. And I was only 25% focused on business quality. So when I went out to look for businesses, I would screen for statistical cheapness, and then I'd come up with, let's say, 100 companies. Um, and then I would look for the better businesses among them. Right. And what I should have done is the exact opposite, which is I should have said, let me go out and find the 100 greatest businesses that grace the planet Earth um, and that have the biggest moats, that have the brightest futures, that have the most long-term potential. And then let's look there for, for the ones that are being temporarily mispriced when I can get in at a good price. But then once I'm lucky enough to get in at a good price, 
I'm going to ride them until right. the until the story changes. Right. You know, uh, stories sometimes change. You know, Valiant was a twenty bagger before the story changed, and it went down by ninety seven percent. So I'm not selling. I'm not saying my mistake was. You know, I never should have sold anything. If you make a mistake, the story changes, or if the valuation truly gets extreme. Um, you need to get out of a position or at least trim it. Um, obviously, part of uh, a, a critical part of portfolio management is position sizing and managing uh, a high-class problem, which is you put on a 5% position in a stock, and then it doubles, and it doubles again, and it doubles again. It's a high-class problem, but figuring out you know, when to let your winners run, how much and when right. to trim, et cetera, is a, a, is a key part of that. So that was a, that was a big mistake. Um, so I'm now... Uh, I, you know, I still consider myself a value investor, but I sort of say I'm not a value investor or a growth investor. I'm a make money investor. You know, I'm much more open today to um, paying up uh, uh, for a stock um, that that may not look cheap on a current year's earnings multiple or something like that, uh, but where you know I can think, okay, five years from now, what is where do I think this company is likely to be, and what can it be earning, you know, five years from now? Whereas historically, I was only willing to, you know, look at sort of current year earnings or maybe what they were earning next year, right. and I didn't, I, I wasn't willing to look out any further than that. So I missed a lot of the great moonshots. Another stock, by the way, I owned back in 1999 was Amazon, for right? Sakes, right. We should talk about that yeah. because I thought I think that it was uh, Doug Cass uh, I saw yeah. on your site. Uh, who was talking about Amazon. Yes. But you know, the, the first thing that came to mind when you were telling that story was uh, the European banking sector, because we've yeah. been talking about European banks. Actually, I spoke to an investor last week or the week before last, and he said in his fund, he has no European bank stocks. Right. Yet, when you look at them on a price to book uh, valuation, right. Deutsche Bank, for instance, is trading at, you know, uh, 20% of book, 30% of book. Yeah. I mean, that's a cheap stock. When you look at it from the paradigm that you're talking about now, how do you look at the banking sector as an example, financials yeah. in general? Well, generally, um, banks, particularly investment banks, which have big derivative books, because um, uh, I think you have to differentiate between, you know, just your standard retail banking franchises um, versus investment banks like a Deutsche Bank or something. Mm -hmm. Generally speaking, they make me nervous. Insurance companies I'd throw in there as well, in that there's just uh, there's black swan risk out there because there's leverage and because um, they have big either derivative books or loan books where it's very difficult often. They're sort of black boxes, so you right. don't know what's in there. So you just have to have a lot of confidence in management uh, generally, which is why you know Berkshire Hathaway certainly uh, is something I felt comfortable owning just because I've studied Buffett and Munger so closely and understand their fundamental conservatism. Uh, but there aren't very many other financials. Uh, I mean, the financial sector, the history of financials is just littered with boom and busts and management teams that are out there trying to deliver steady earnings growth in a sector that often doesn't lend itself to that. You know, I just uh, my general view of the European financial sector is is after the uh, great financial crisis in 08 and 09, the U.S. did a very good job of forcing the entire financial sector to clean up, um, to realize their losses, to run off their bad banks, 
and clean up underwriting standards, et cetera, but mostly to take their medicine um, and, and recapitalize. clean up and, and recapitalize, et cetera. And that didn't really happen in Europe. You know, I, I host an investing conference in Italy every summer, and so I'm talking to my Italian value investor friends over there. And, you know, the Banco Monte de Pasci, you know, the oldest bank in the world, a dozen years later is still on death's door and has had to do multiple rounds of, of capital raising because they sort of had a bad loan book but didn't uh, or couldn't take their medicine. So I'm, uh, you know, there, there are a lot of things. I'd say the vast majority of what I look at generally just goes into the too hard bucket. Um, so Deutsche Bank and, doesn't interest you because, you know, you know and, and, and by comparison, I think that when we were talking, I thought it was interesting, you know, mm -hmm. when you do the 25, 75, 25% cheap, 75% right. good business, it brings us immediately to the GSEs. Yeah. So when you talk about financials, the juxtaposition between the black box of the investment bank versus what I would consider a dominant position of the GSEs is very interesting. Right. And that's a very interesting political story that I think yeah. that you have a lot of knowledge about. Tell me a little bit about What's going on there? Yeah, well, it's interesting. Since I started my investment newsletter um, in April of this year, I'd say at least half of the half dozen or so recommendations we've made so far, we put out one. Um, I have a free daily e-letter that goes out to 35,000 people or so every day. But we once a month, we put together a 10 to 15 page report on our single best investment idea. And that goes to our paid subscribers. So mm -hmm. once a month since March, you know, we've had a half dozen ideas. The majority of them have been uh, ideas from back in my hedge fund days, companies that I've known for a long time. Um, and one of the more interesting speculations that was in my hedge fund was Fannie and Freddie, the right. government-sponsored entities, the mortgage giants, the GSEs, which um, in many ways were, uh, it, what happened to them is exactly what happened with AIG, for example. Mm -hmm. um, it was de deemed, uh, they were correctly, both AIG and the GSEs were deemed systemically important. The US government came in, gave them an unlimited line of credit to make sure they could get through the crisis and all, um, and took 80% of their stocks. Right. Um, and that's what happened in 08 within a couple weeks of each other to both the GSEs and AIG. What happened differently with the GSEs, though, is, um, well, let me, what happened with AIG, let's start there, and then okay. I'll tell you what happened differently with the GSEs. Um, in the case of AIG, um, the company recovered as the economy and financial system uh, recovered. Um, AIG um, sold off assets, returned to profitability. They paid back the government loans with interest. And then um, the government still owned 80% of the stock, uh, which the government, over the course of a number of equity offerings, exited the position. And the government made a fortune right. off AIG. And AIG is now an independent, privatized, and very carefully regulated uh, major financial institution today. That's exactly what should have happened to the GSEs. The problem is, is in 2012, just as the GSEs were about to return to massive profitability, they're incredible franchises. They control about 50% of the mortgages in the world's largest debt market. Uh, these two entities have 50% market share, um, and they just mint money because of their government backstop. They can access capital at ultra-low rates and make a very nice spread. And after the financial crisis, all their competitors had gone bankrupt. The guarantee fees had tripled. So they were about to, and their losses started to diminish such that they were about to start minting money. 
And then in 2012, the government um, just decided, you know what, we don't like that. We don't like the fact that you're going to make a lot of money and that shareholders are about to get rich. And so they just arbitrarily changed the terms of the conservatorship, the bailout but deal from 2008. At and, that time? And, and they did something called the net worth sweep, which was to take all their profits forever. Now, the sweep uh, was precipitated by a re realization that, in fact, that this was going to occur, that they were going to go... Return to a high degree of profitability. profitability. And ironically enough, though, the government has been defending the sweep for saying precisely the opposite, which is um, that we were worried the, about stabilizing the housing market and the soundness of the GSEs. But um, subsequent discovery and testimony in the court cases has revealed that that's a 100% lie, contrary to the facts where emails were going back and forth, where the CFO of one of the GSEs was emailing the regulator saying, yeah, by the way, we're about to start earning a ton of money. Right. Um, and so it was, I think, a political action where the GSEs, even remember the controversy over AIG and how angry politicians and the general public were about this big giant that behaved badly that was getting bailed out and now shareholders are getting rich and so forth. Well, the GSEs, uh, that was AIG times 10. Right. And so I think the Obama administration sort of felt like for political reasons that they didn't want that to happen here. They feared a political blowback. So they engineered a blatantly illegal seizure of private assets. In other words, shareholders had bought the shares of the GSEs based on the terms of the bailout in 2008, and then the government just said, no, nah, we're going to take all the profits forever. You know, so, at, so, at some point in yeah. time, people thought maybe Fannie and Fetty should be uh, public. I mean, the, the reason that they exist is right. uh, for public benefit. Correct. So, you know, you could make the argument that the reason that they were doing that is because there's an argument to be made that at least for the foreseeable future, given how irresponsibly they behaved in the past, we're yes. going to uh, make these governments, not just sponsored, but government yes. enterprises. Yes. Well, look, the government back in 2008, um, had two choices, um, conservatorship or receivership. Right. Receivership would have involved just taking them over completely, um, having them become part of the government, and probably a wind down, um, although it turns out they're sort of irreplaceable. But had they gone into receivership, the shares would have been canceled, and that all would have been fine. That would have been an option. Now, the government didn't go that route because it did not want to bring a $5 trillion a loan book onto its own balance sheet, mm, mm -hmm. okay? So instead, the law says, okay, if you pick conservatorship, um, that's all well and good, but according to the law that guides either receivership or conservatorship, conservatorship, think about what the word conservatorship means. It means you are conserving them. You are supposed to be recapitalizing them, uh, et cetera. So the government said, okay, we don't want the $5 trillion on our, banking, uh, on our balance sheet, so we're going to go the conservatorship route. Well, that's all well and good. But then the net worth sweep, which is take away all their profits forever so that they can never rebuild capital, is the complete opposite of what the law says conservatorship is all about. So to make a long story short, what's interesting is as we sit here today is this is the first day of trading on a, on a Monday after yes. last Friday when the Fifth Circuit Court of Appeals 
after years and years of litigation where um, mostly some big deep-pocketed hedge funds, very unsympathetic plaintiffs, have been suing to overturn the net worth sweep, um, they finally won. And uh, a court of appeals Friday after the close ruled uh, that the net worth sweep was illegal, remanded it back to the lower court to then decide what to do about it. And Secretary of Treasury Mnuchin just this morning said, you know, even before the lower court you know, re-decides this case uh -huh. based on the court of appeals ruling that the net uh, worth sweep is illegal, that we're going to stop the net worth sweep uh, administratively mm. in the very near future and all. The last I looked, the stocks were up 21% today. And honestly, uh, we put out a, a, a special alert to our subscribers this morning saying the market is underreacting. The stocks should be up 50% or more today based on this legal ruling because you know now the net worth sweep is gone and shareholders now own 20% of two of the world's most valuable and profitable businesses. The, they combined earned $20 billion last year in profit that was all swept away by the right. government that now both the court and Treasury Secretary Mnuchin just said that money is now going to accrue to the GSEs. And keep in mind, this is a huge win for the taxpayers because the government owns 80% of the GSEs. So shareholders are winning alongside taxpayers. And very importantly, one of the key things that has to happen here is, is because the GSEs have not been able to retain any of their capital, they've sent $301 billion to the government uh, over the course of this net worth sweep in the last seven years. That is capital that should have been accruing to the GSEs to allow them to rebuild their capital basis. They need to get up to, I'd guess, 150 to 200 billion of capital to be uh, safely recapitalized. Right. Um, and so now that can start to happen, but it's, that's only happening at a $20 billion a year pace. Let me uh, interrupt you yeah. for a second there, because uh, there are a number of uh, different thoughts on this. One is, uh, first and foremost, I think, is Mnuchin and the Trump administration's mm -hmm. plans for the GSEs going forward in terms of the recapitalization, because it's been clear from the beginning, I spoke to David Metzner of ACG Analytics about this, that Trump wants them to be privatized, reprivatized, taken out of conservatorship, in which case they need to be recapitalized. Right. So what has Mnuchin said? What's the timeline for that happening? Well, he hasn't laid out a specific timeline for the whole process. It will probably take a few years before they are truly independent. And by the way, a few years after that, before the government sells off its 80% stake, just right. like it did with AIG. I mean, the irony here is, is that we didn't need to reinvent the wheel here. All we needed to do is do with the GSEs what the government did with AIG very successfully, which is declare victory, get paid back with interest, and then sell off the stock and make another $100 billion in profits or something in this case. Uh, so so that's, the, that's the model. It will probably take a few years. It will eventually need some kind of congressional action, but it's the Trump administration and Mnuchin and Mark Calabria who heads up the Federal Housing Finance Agency, which is the government's, uh, the GSE's regulator. Calabria and Mnuchin have both made it clear that they are willing and able to act administratively. So that was what Mnuchin said just this morning, that they're going to stop the net worth sweep. Right immediately. Um, and so that um, means that the recapitalization is beginning. That, that'll be $20 billion of, of capital right there, you know, each year going forward. Now, 
They will likely um, also need to do one or more equity offerings um, to rebuild capital. And that's another reason why Treasury wants their share prices to go up, why we think there's a great opportunity in the stock right now, because Treasury and Mnuchin ha uh, have two very strong reasons to want a higher stock price. One, that they are representing taxpayers who own 80% of the stock. Right. So that benefits taxpayers for sure. But secondly, the you can't release them until you recapitalize them. You can't end the conservatorship. Um, and to recapitalize them, you're going to need to do some equity offerings, i.e. you need a higher share price. They can't. If the government takes actions that harm current shareholders, good luck going out and trying to raise equity capital from new shareholders when you just screwed the old ones, right? That's just not going to fly. Um, in fact, exactly the opposite is, is true, which is take actions that lead to a share price doubling to $6 a share, let's say, and then do a $20 billion offering. And then things are progressing nicely and stock's now at $10 a share. Now you do another $20 billion offering. You do a few of those over a couple of years, plus the retained earnings of the companies at $20 billion a year. Um, you probably convert the preferred stock there's a debate over at par or maybe some small discount to par. The preferreds are trading about 50 cents on the dollar today. So that, that's a good investment as well. It, I think which there's more upside in the common. More upside in the common. You know, everyone who's, uh, all my fellow bulls on the GSEs, uh, we agree on a lot of things, but everybody seems to disagree on whether this, uh, whether the best way to play it is the stock versus the prefs. Generally speaking, the prefs are senior in the capital structure, um, and there seems to be a fairly clear path to you getting par or close to par there, in which case you double your money. Because um, they're trading below par right they're now. They're trading about 50%. Right. There, there are many, many different series, and depending on liquidity and exact terms, but, but call it 50 cents on the dollar. Mm -hmm. um, uh, whereas the common has more risk, uh, but I think you have multi-bagger upside uh, in the common. So there is a scenario, by the way, the prefs would argue that um, in order to rebuild capital, they're going to have to convert us at par. Right. So we're going to double our money, whereas there could be massive and multiple dilutive share offerings that dilute the common and keep the common share price depressed. Witness European banks, for example. Right, yes. uh, where, but, so we prefs, uh, I'd much rather own the prefs because I am, uh, have a very high probability of a doubling my money. But I understand I'm not going to make more than that. And I avoid the risk of dilution and a long-term depressed share price um, if I just own the common. And I agree that that's, that's a conservative way to play it. Um, and I just, my, my argument and my recommendation to my subscribers is, is make it a smaller position, maybe make it a 3% position, whereas I might have a 5% position in the prefs. A little bit smaller position in the common. It's riskier. But I think you're compensated for that risk by... You know, the, the long-term upside here depends on a lot of different factors, but it's not just a doubling. You could have a five or 10 bagger on your hands over time. And I'm, as a shareholder, I generally look to invest, if you pull back to, you, you recall what I said about, you know, what do I really look for uh -huh. is, is insanely great businesses with impregnable moats that are minting money where I can buy their stocks do, uh, that are temporarily depressed due to factors that are either fixable or will somehow go away over time. Uh, and then I want to ride them for 10 or 20 years to 10 or 10 bagger or more returns, right? 
That's what I get with the common stocks here. Right. But quite speculative. There are plenty of scenarios, uh, even after the nice uh, legal victory on Friday, where you could have a permanent impairment of capital. And that's why I'm saying, you know, normally when I'm recommending stock ideas, uh, you know, it's not worth doing if you don't make it a 5% position at least, right? It's hard to come up with good investment ideas. Generally, you want to concentrate in high quality businesses and establish good sized positions. This one I'm suggesting keep it at, uh, it was a one and a half percent position when I recommended it last week. And then I said this morning, double it to right. 3%. But that's still small in light of this court ruling, which I think has dramatically reduced the chance of a zero or, or, or a real loss of capital on the, sh on the uh, common stock side and significantly boosted the upside. The odds shifted dramatically after the court ruling on Friday. And that's why I think the stock is really underreacting today, only up 20% or so. So, you know, one of the big questions I have, and I think that a lot of people have with regard to the GSEs when we think about it, is this: what led them to where they are now and how much capital they need to protect against that. One argument is that 150 to 200 might not be enough mm -hmm. because they were un undercapitalized relative to the risk that they were taking right. back in 06, 07. Sure. What's what's your view on that? Sure. Well, a couple things. One is is there's always going to be a government backstop. There always was, but the uh, but there was this big kabuki theater where they, you know, it was an implicit, right? It was never explicit, and the GSEs didn't pay for it. Right. But it was there when the they we were, saw that it was we, we saw that in 2008, the government came in and backstopped it all, right? And so the government is correctly recognizing now that, look, we just need to make it explicit and we should charge them for it. And that's fine. So think of it like, um, uh, like a health insurance policy where you cover everything uh, you know, day to day, but then anything above 100000 or a million dollars or something, you buy tail risk insurance, right? That's effectively what they'll be doing. So that tail, so number one is, is that tail will always be there, but it's very important that the GSEs are capitalized sufficiently such that they never have to exercise that tail uh, insurance. That's what taxpayers and regulators should demand. So the question is, is how much capital is necessary? Um, you know, they've got a $5 trillion uh, loan book today, and it is by and large a very safe and secure loan book. The underwriting standards have been excellent for the last 10 years. The kind of fraud that was taking place back in the housing bubble days is virtually non-existent. I tried to refinance my mortgage, and I'm a pretty good credit. And they they put me through. They gave me a root canal, um, and I'm thinking, wow, if they're giving me a root canal with you know a perfect credit history and and so forth, you know that really speaks to the soundness of the fundamental underwriting mm -hmm. in the system. And what about the Alt A? Well, and the yeah, and then there were two things. If you look at what sank the GSEs during the credit crisis oh. um, and why they ran out of capital, or they didn't really run out of capital, people feared that they would, right. um, is it was not their traditional conforming uh, you know, mortgage book um, uh, that they had guaranteed. It was that they had done two things, um, really going out the risk curve, right at near the peak of the bubble as they were losing share to all the, um, you know, the AmeriQuests and Countrywides of the world. Um, and WAMU's uh, writing bad loans and then packaging them through the Wall Street, the private securitization uh, machine that had grown up during the housing bubble. 
Fannie and Freddie started doing Alt-A uh, and subprime, uh, taking Alt-A and subprime mortgages, which they had never done traditionally. And I think at the very peak, it was 13% of their loan book and accounted for 48% of their losses. So that was huge mistake, number one, that sunk them. And then number two is, is they were engaging in fixed income arbitrage. Effectively, they were becoming like gigantic hedge funds and were out there just speculating um, using their ultra low cost of capital. I mean, imagine, boy, I would love to run a hedge fund that could access capital at the US government's rate, which is effectively what they had due to their implicit government guarantee. So they took huge losses on their fixed income arbitrage, basically hedge fund speculation business. So those, the Alte and the subprime and the fixed income arbitrage businesses uh, have become, have, have shrunk or are basically non-existent. So I think any part of releasing them, um, recapitalizing and releasing is, is there will have to be very tight regulations that restrict you know, those kind of speculative activities. So those kind of risks and leverage and so forth don't build up. If you do those two things, you've got the tail, uh, you should never have to use the government's tail risk. I think if you have somewhere between 150 and 200 billion of, of first loss equity capital underlying a sound, well underwritten $5 trillion loan book between the two of them. That sounds interesting. Now, mm -hmm. now let me uh, take a little transition here for a second uh, in terms of other things that are happening in today's market. Something that's on my mind is WeWork. Yeah. And, and one of the reasons that it's on my mind is because when we were talking before, you were talking about McDonald's being one of your big plays. And one of the underappreciated things about uh, McDonald's was their real estate uh, mm -hmm. valuation. WeWork is also a real estate company in many ways. but. Right. There's a lot of angst about what are they really worth? What's right. your view as a value investor on that? I think WeWork is worth zero and will be bankrupt within a year uh, is the is the uh, my latest thought um, based on what I read over the weekend. Um, the company is um, roughly speaking in the last 12 months has um, a billion six in revenue and 3.2 billion in costs, thus they lose about a billion six. So they're right. hemorrhaging money. Now, there are plenty of businesses that have lost a lot of money in, in their early stages that go on to be enormously valuable. And we're gonna talk about um, Amazon, hopefully. Amazon is one, but you know, look at all the software as a service companies, um, you know, uh, pharmaceutical companies. Some of them require years of investment and losses, but then you reach a critical mass or some, so, so forth, and you have a great business. The problem I have with WeWork is, is I think their entire business model, which is leasing long-term real estate, and by the way, you know, at peak of the market prices, right. uh, the real estate market's been pretty strong in the US um, and, and elsewhere where they're leasing. So they're either purchasing or leasing long, and then they're just doing month-to-month -month, um, you know, leases uh, to the, their, their clients. Um, and they're trying to wrap this up in this big techno bubble and change the world and all. It's just absolute nonsense. Um, they're just a, a real estate company uh, that's you know, borrowing long and lending short, essentially. And you know what happens to banks that do that. It works great for a while right. <laughs> until the market changes. And the problem is, is 
what happens in the next economic downturn, um, and there will be one, hard to know when, and I don't have any strong feelings about when, uh, but um, all of their clients are on month-to-month contracts, and so in a recession, when people um, shut their businesses or move them out of uh, into lower-cost space or whatever, WeWork's still on the hook for the mortgage payments on the real estate that they bought or the lease payments on the long-term, on the real estate they leased. So I don't think it's the worst business model I've ever seen, but it's definitely in the bottom 25% as business models go. And then, of course, they've let costs get completely out of control. I don't know if you've ever been into WeWork space, but it's all very um, architecturally fancy. Oh, yeah, and fancy lighting. They're, they're, they spend huge amounts of money. Um, and it's a great deal for clients because investors are subsidizing a billion six in losses, um, which is uh, resulting in you know low price space where you don't have to sign a long-term lease and they give you you know free drinks and beer and uh, you know beautifully uh, built out space. And then you just throw in just the horrible corporate governance and, and every other red flag you could imagine. From the S1, and we found out a lot exactly. of that. Exactly, um, and every day you know, we're learning more and more um, you know, bits of dirt on, on um, you know, corporate governance and laws and so forth. So you combine um, a business losing huge amounts of money with a business model even at scale that is at best has mediocre profitability, very capital intensive, very competitive business, uh, et cetera, combined with every corporate governance and Silicon Valley nonsense red flag. Um, and then um, they have these dreams of an absurd valuation, and I don't think the IPO gets done. And, right. and I've said that now for a number of weeks. And if the IPO doesn't get done, given that they're burning all that cash. I think they, they run out of money. I mean, what is bankruptcy when a business runs out of money? And, and, uh, you, and the private markets have been very kind to unicorns, you know, these money-losing private companies, you know, take Uber, Lyft, and so forth. Um, but at least, you know, I, I'm open to the idea that Uber or Lyft could be very profitable businesses long term. Uh, I don't think it's likely, but I think it's possible. It's hard for me to see how it's possible for WeWork, and I think investors are seeing that as well. Um, so the question is, is uh, there was an article over the weekend uh, how SoftBank, which has been the primary financial backer uh, of WeWork, um, is going to take a big haircut, even if they get the IPO done at $20 billion. The last round was done at $47 billion. So SoftBank's going to take a big haircut. If the IPO doesn't get done, they, I think SoftBank just woke up to, holy cow, our, our single biggest investment here is, even in a good scenario, is going to be a huge write-down. Um, I think they're going to be reluctant to put more money in. And if SoftBank isn't going to, who else is going to? And so I think WeWork could rapidly just run out of money. And there's no way you can cut your expenses when you've got a, a cost, uh, you know, such a revenue cost mismatch. Right. It's not like, you know, there. I mean, there were plenty of um, internet companies back in 1999, 2000, where when the market fell apart, Companies like Amazon, like Priceline, um, you know, uh, were able to cut their costs very rapidly and sort of limp along, at least on a cash flow neutral basis, living off the cash that they had raised during the bubble days. And some of those stocks, you know, became hundred baggers or more, right? Um, I don't think WeWork has that possibility. They're not sitting on a huge pile of cash, and they're, they're, there's no way for them to get that burn rate down um, quickly or um, to any material degree, I think. So I think a bankruptcy's, I'd give better than 50-50 chance of a bankruptcy you know, in the next year or two. 
Well, you mentioned uh, Amazon. Mm -hmm. we, we mentioned Amazon uh, back and forth uh, two or three times in this conversation. Yeah. They, they were the 100 bagger. Doug Cass is talking about them as a, as a buy. Why do you think that Amazon at this price actually is a value investment? There are a couple different ways to look at it. Um, uh, generally speaking, uh, I think Amazon in the next two to three years um, becomes just a PE multiple um, uh, earnings per share. You've always, you know, historically for the last 20 years, you've sort of, and the reason I could never really get comfortable owning it is, is you sort of had to value it on some, I don't know, multiple of revenue or something many years out. Whereas now Amazon has just gone through almost like a 10 year period of very heavy investment, particularly building distribution centers to a much lesser extent uh, buying content for their prime streaming service and all. But they've had, um, Amazon, if you look back 10 years or so, sort of had a five or 6% operating margin on their retail business. And then as they expensed uh, building out a couple hundred distribution centers, et cetera, that went down to one or 2%, right? And But that big expense is now ending. Um, and the combination of retail profit margins going back to five or 6%, which is not at all an unrealistic vision given their scale and dominance, and what they did historically, combined with Amazon Web Services is just an incredible business. Um, and what are the operating margins there? I don't know, 40% right. or something, and growing at a super high rate. Uh, I don't think anybody catches them. You combine those two things, and I think you see over the next couple of years of profitability in Amazon just hockey sticking. So, uh, you know, if you take 80 bucks a share, I think I'm, that's a number three years out, two to three years from now. Um, today, the stocks call it at 2,000, so that's 24 times uh, Amazon, a 24 PE business a couple of years from now. Amazon is going to trade 24 times earnings. It's going to trade higher than that. You know, Amazon is just a juggernaut. I don't see what can stop them from uh, being one of the most profitable businesses on earth. And it's sort of ironic because Amazon, you would think inherently, just sort of has a low margin business. You know, just being the Walmart of the internet, right? Uh, but um, it's you know, distribution centers are much more efficient than running bricks and mortar stores. And then you throw in Amazon Web Services. And then there's a whole another element where you or your viewers just go to Amazon and just do a search for big screen TV and see what pops up. Mm -hmm. And what you'll see is the first bunch of links are all ads. And so Amazon is now becoming a third real player in the advertising business behind Google and Facebook. Um, Amazon's much smaller, but growing much faster. And keep in mind, this is just pure profit. And think about if someone searches big screen TV in Google, how much is a big screen TV maker, is Samsung gonna pay for a click on their advertised sponsored link at the top? And then how much would they be willing to pay for the same search on Amazon? A lot more. 10 times more, right? Uh, not double. Uh, and because the, you know, obviously the likelihood of making a buy, right. you know, when it's people there. are searching on Amazon, they're ready to buy. Exactly. Yeah, people are searching on Google, they're just doing research, you know, who knows? Those earnings from advertising is 100% profit basically uh, to Amazon and would be awarded a very high multiple by investors. And so what's the downside risk on, on that particular uh, trade, that particular investment? 
look, a lot of this is you're looking out a few years and uh, there could be a, a general recession. Almost every day there's some sort of scandal. Uh, just in the past week, there have been a story about how Amazon same-day delivery trucks um, have been in a bunch of crashes, but mm -hmm. Amazon doesn't own them. It's all subcontracted. There could be legislation, particularly under President Elizabeth Warren, uh, for example, uh, uh, that, for example, affects uh, not just Amazon, but particularly Uber and Lyft that requires all of these contract employees to come on their payroll, you have to pay them benefits and all, it would destroy Uber and Lyft, oh, yeah. destroy their business models. Amazon, it would just reduce their margins a bit. And then there was a second article, another article on Amazon, where um, there were all these sort of Chinese fakes being sold on the site, and there's more scrutiny um, um, about what Amazon is selling. You know, so um, I think Amazon has less um, regulatory risk than Facebook and Google, which are affecting politics and presidential elections and things like that. But so there's definitely, uh, though, some regulatory risk there. You know, frankly, I'd love to have Elizabeth Warren come in and force Amazon to split off Amazon Web Services. There's really no reason that needs to be part of Amazon. And I think that would unlock enormous value. Now, see, that's the thing. The, the risk hanging over two of my other favorite tech stocks, Google and Facebook, those are my big three. I'm a big fan of those. I am not at all a fan of Apple. I, I don't, uh, um, uh, I think Apple just, there's no growth left. Whereas right. I think Amazon, Facebook, and Google still have a lot of room to grow. Investors are concerned about the possibility that the government, particularly under President uh, uh, Elizabeth Warren, and I think Bernie Sanders has also um, called for their breakup. I think that would be a home run for investors. Um, you know, if Google spun off uh, YouTube and Waymo, uh, I think those three pieces would be worth a lot more than than they are combined. I think if Facebook was forced to re, you know, they bought Instagram, Instagram and WhatsApp. Yeah. If they were forced to, you know, spin them back out, I think those three pieces are worth a lot more. So. You know, the companies don't want it. They're scrambling uh, to, to head it off. I, and I don't think it's likely, but I don't view that as a negative for the stock. If it happens, I think it would unlock value. Well, you know, uh, we, we're going to have to have you come back and talk to us about investment ideas. That's something that I talk about uh, on a weekly basis, bi-weekly basis, and I'd love to hear some of your uh, ideas coming up. It's been a pleasure talking to you, and I hope to uh, have another conversation about this uh, again in the very near future. Great. Thanks for having me. Thank you. So that was a very interesting conversation that we just had. I really enjoyed talking to Whitney, uh, going from the arc of his career to where he gave up running money, and now he's really strictly focused on being an analyst. I think that the last few points about Fannie and Freddie, about Amazon on the long side, and then also WeWork on the negative side were very interesting. I hope that you enjoyed it. I definitely did. Thanks for watching. You're a podcast listener, and this is a podcast ad. Reach great listeners like yourself with podcast advertising from Lips and Ads. Choose from hundreds of top podcasts offering host endorsements, or run a reproduced ad like this one across thousands of shows to reach your target audience with Lips and Ads. Go to lipsandads.com now. That's L I B S Y N ads.com.